Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th Wartime Diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating Wartime Diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this, believe it or not, is the season finale of Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Now, if you heard our last episode, you'll know that we're in the middle of a two-part series, 68 and Counting. It's based on our latest live show, and it's a journey through Israeli history, all made up of stories that took place on Independence Day, in 10-year intervals, from 1948 till today. Last time, we started off with the radio broadcast of the Declaration of the State, straight from the bathroom of the Tel Aviv Museum. We then skipped a decade, to 1958, and met Peretz Shkalim, a new immigrant from Iran who came to Israel with a dream and with Persian rugs. He's known in Israel as a carpetman. He's known as a THE carpetman. Ten years later, we marched with Shimon Giler in the extravagant post-Six-Day War military parade in the newly unified Jerusalem. When you are small, the tank 
looks like a mountain. And then heard how 14-year-old Palestinian Ali Klebo didn't quite share Shimon's excitement. It is like seeing a monster in the monster movie. And these were the instruments of the monster. Lastly, we jumped up in the air as Tal Brody and his Maccabi Tel Aviv teammates put us on the map with their huge victory in the European Championship. And today, we pick up where we left off. Yom Ha'atzmaut, 1988. So, all the stories we've heard up until now on this journey were, at least for me, part of history. In order to report them, we dove into archives, read old newspapers, interviewed people the age of our grandparents. But 1988 is different. It's the first Independence Day in our series that I actually remember myself. Well, sort of. I was five, and we had just come back to Israel from a long sabbatical in America. But I'm not alone. It was a first for many people. Katie Pulverman went to talk to a bunch of them. 1988. It was my first Independence Day. It was very exciting, really. It was very exciting. Meet Yosef. Okay, I'm Yosef Begun. I was born in Soviet Union in Moscow in 1932, before the Great War. Yosef remembers the exact date he made Aliyah. 88, January 20. I remember the day, of course. It was just new birth. And the reason it was like a new birth for him, as he says, is that he'd been waiting for that day for a very long time. I was more than nine years in prison because of my activity uh, for Jewish affairs as uh, a refusenik. And I was a long time uh, very alone, uh, very just uh, alienated and was very unhappy because I feel need for my Jewish connection. I was blamed that I am parasite. You know the word parasite? Yosef was a Zionist, a well-known refusenik, or prisoner of Zion. He taught Hebrew and wanted to leave the Soviet Union and move to Israel. And as far as the KGB was concerned, that constituted a big threat. They accused me that um, I am anti-Soviet, uh, enemy of, of the regime. Of course, I was dismissed of all my jobs. I lost everything. It didn't stop there. In 1971, when he was 39 years old, Yosef was arrested. Then that happened again. And again. He was sent to the Siberian Gulag. Over time, he became a well-known figure, sort of a symbol for Soviet Zionists. I was criminal of state level, you know, it's very dangerous, criminal. In 1987, as part of Gorbachev's perestroika reforms, he was released. This is a recording of him being carried on the shoulders of his supporters at the Moscow train station as he returned home. A few months later, on April 21st, 1988, that chant, next year in Jerusalem, became reality. Yosef celebrated his very first Independence Day in Jerusalem. Well, I was, of course, very excited as I saw crowds of, of Jews all around the Jerusalem. Great um, joy on the streets. It was very moving for me. 
Less than an hour's drive away, other Israelis were celebrating a different kind of first Yom Atzma'ut on that very same day. Yanki Anadina Elephant made Aliyah from Syracuse, New York. Yom Atzma'ut 1988 wasn't their first in Israel, but it was the first in their new home, in the newly established, modern Orthodox, West Bank settlement of Hashmonaim. They had no electricity, there were no paved roads, or even trees or shade. Looking around, all they could see were barren hills and one small Arab village. The first Yom Atzmut in the Yishuv was 1988. And the whole Yishuv, all of our 21 families, got together and we spent it together. And we had a big spread. Somebody made falafel, somebody cut up salad, and everybody, you know, stuffed their own pitot. And, uh, and the kids roasted marshmallows and did whatever they did. That was the Yom Atzmut that I remember. We were the eighth family. There was nobody living in this area. There were no, no homes, nothing. Everybody shared what they could. They, they brought, they cooked, they, uh, they shopped. And uh, we had a feeling of being a family because of our settling in this place together. We asked Yanki and Adina what had attracted them here. Their answer, like that of many settlers, was a mixture of pragmatism and idealism. I wanted a private home, and I wanted to live over the Green Line, and um, that's why we're here. We're very Zionistic in our outlook, and we wanted a place where we really would feel very much that we settled in this country, and we'd have room for the kids to grow. Chashmonaim was our statement of we want to repopulate areas which were Jewish before that. For us, it was rebuilding the country. Before we left, Yankee took us for a tour of the settlement. Ring Road is the road that uh, circles the entire issue. Today, it's thriving. More than 550 families live here. And there are beautiful homes with red tile roofs and green gardens. There's even a baseball diamond, home to the Hashmonaim Titans. Yankee pointed out the old dirt road, the site of the original entrance, the first synagogue. Then we stopped at the top of a hill and looked out at the houses of the next village over, 500 meters away. That's an Arab village called Midia. We actually had uh, some of the Arabs who lived there did work for us in building when we were building our house here. As you can see, it's walking distance. And I would walk there and have coffee with them. We were I won't say we were friends. We didn't go to movies together or do anything like that, but we were on very good relations. I was slightly skeptical, even though I know that in one of those ironic twists of life in Israel, settlers usually have closer ties to Palestinians than card-carrying lefties from Tel Aviv do. Yanki clarified. Let's put it this way. There are no public signs of animosity between the people in Midia and uh, us. So um, the fences that you see around here were not put up to keep the Arabs out, but to keep them from stealing building supplies when the place was being uh, built. Yosef the Refusnik and the Elephants, the settlers, they came from opposite sides of a crumbling iron curtain. But still, in Israel, they sort of felt the same. There was a feeling of, we are Chalutzim, we are the first ones here. 
have lived here many more years than I did in the States. I felt that it's my country. It's my country, my only country. Israel, it's home. It's real, my own home uh, in the world. Katie Pulverman. The 90s were a roller coaster ride. More than a million Russians arrived after the fall of the Soviet Union. 14,000 Ethiopians were airlifted to Israel in less than 36 hours. The Oslo Accords ended with the famous signing and handshake on the White House lawn, and King Hussein became our new best friend. And then there was Israel's most significant before and after moment Rabin's assassination. It was indicative of something that had been going on for a while, but that we sort of preferred, collectively, not to notice. Israel was becoming more and more fragmented. And it wasn't just the growing rift between the left and the right. There was also, as Shoshi Shmulevitz will show us in the next story, a deepening divide between secular Israel and religious Israel. You know how you throw a stone in the sea and then there are the circles and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger? The stone, let's say, it was the Pamonea Yovel. I think that it gave an energy for the art world, a new momentum. Adi Salant has always been dancing. It's like breathing with my whole body. And on Yomat Sma'ut 1998, she was going to be in her first big show with the Batsheva Dance Company. The performance would be part of Israel's extravagant 50th Independence Day celebration, a variety show called Pa'amone Hayovel, The Bells of the Jubilee. That name had important connotations. In biblical times, the Jubilee was a holy year when all debts were forgiven and all slaves were freed. So from the outset, Pamone Yovel was more than just entertainment. And by the end, it became even bigger, because that Batsheva dance performance never happened. Instead, it launched a culture war that pitted religious against secular, Jewish values against democracy. It all started at the big dress rehearsal a couple of nights before the show. Here's Nomi Fortis, who back then was the co-artistic director of the Batsheva Dance Company. So we had the dress rehearsal. Everything was beautiful. We went back home. The morning after, I got a phone call from Shuki. Shuki Weiss, the producer of Pamonaya Yovel. And he said, I heard that there was a lady, religious lady or orthodox lady, in the dress rehearsal. And she called somebody in the government. Came a question back to me. If this would have looked offending by the ultra-Orthodox, would you consider to change the costumes? The dance they were performing was called Echad Mi Odea. It was choreographed by Batsheva's artistic director, Ohad Naharin. And it was already an iconic piece. The company had performed it many times in Israel and around the world. What 
was so offensive about this piece wasn't the fact that they used a rock version of a Passover song. It wasn't that the dancers dressed in black suits the way ultra-Orthodox Jews do. And it wasn't even the movements themselves. What was insulting was that by the end of the song, the dancers stripped down to boxer shorts and tank tops. And that, according to Orthodox Judaism, is immodest. Rabbi Yitzchak Levi was the culture minister at the time. The Jubilee performance, which is supposed to represent our cultural identity, must respect us. Now the costumes in that piece were inappropriate and disrespectful. And that was offensive to the part of the population who were not willing to see that kind of dress. Rabbi Levy was one of the moderates. Although he's religious and he didn't like the costumes, he didn't take a stand against Batsheva. But that was the argument coming from the ultra-Orthodox parties. So Nomi talked to Ohad, the choreographer, and he said, I never wanted to offend nobody, and no, we will not change the costumes. It's part of the creation, it's part of the artistic work. And Nomi thought, that was it, end of discussion. And then a few hours went by, and another phone call came. A little bit more stressed already. And, and again asking the question, and, and, and then coming with a few more arguments, why it is important, and what's offending about it, and so on. And we were trying to, to manage a civil discussion about it, you know. What exactly is offending for you? And if we change that, what will happen to the other elements? If you look for something to be offending, you'll find many offending elements in it. So Nomi and Ohad stood their ground. We asked to be released from the show because we didn't want to be under that pressure. We didn't want to be offending to nobody. But when all the other performers caught wind of it, they said that if Batsheva didn't go on, they wouldn't go on. And that is when the pressure began to build. And then started like constant waves, which each wave was followed by a stronger one and a stronger one. And each time somebody higher up got involved, all the way up to the prime minister's office. And they started to say that it's a political issue and um, the government might fall if we say no. The offended parties threatened to topple the coalition unless the dancers covered themselves up. They were at a stalemate. If Batsheva performed, the government might fall. And if they didn't perform, the show wouldn't go on, which it had to because dozens of foreign dignitaries had already arrived for the celebration. And it was going to be televised, not just in Israel, but in 50 countries around the world. The next morning, the day of the big show, Nomi got a phone call. Nomi, it's Ohad. I'm in Jerusalem. They took me to the president. And what's going on, Ohad? They put pressure on me. I'm in the room now. I have to take a decision. They're threatening me. I don't know what to do. I can't talk anymore. Shut down the phone. The president of Israel, Ezra Weizmann, threatened to defund the dance company unless Ohad complied. But in the same breath, the president offered a compromise. To change the final clause from underwears, short underwears, to long underwears. Long johns, or gatkes in Yiddish. And then he calls again, Nomi, now I can talk, what do you say? I say, listen, I'm completely backing you, whatever. Whatever. If you say no, it's no, you say no to the president. It's okay, whatever will happen, will happen. Okay, bye. <laughs> and then one more phone call. Um, they really threatened me. They wanted me to change the costume. I had to say yes, but, and I'm resigning. Right after the show, I'm resigning. And I said, I'm resigning with you. 
Later that day, when the dancers arrived in Jerusalem for the performance, Ohad told them about the costume change and his resignation. And then immediately the dancer said, no issue, we're not going on stage. That's it. We're just not going on stage. And of course, we even said something like, you know, it might mean that we're all fired tonight or something. Yes, so we're not going on stage, we are backing you. We didn't stop to think so much. That's Adi Salant, the dancer you heard earlier. It was from the guts, you know. We felt it's wrong to perform with it like this, and we went for it. Backstage, the prime minister's chief of staff tried to convince the dance company to perform, as planned, in the Gatkes. The show was already starting. The curtains were opening, and the dancers, instead of complying... They started knocking on dressing room doors, telling all the other performers that Batsheva won't go on. And they asked them to take a stand, to keep their promise and refuse to perform. So even though they said that they will not perform, they did perform in the end. None of the other artists came through. There was nothing left for the company to do but leave. By the time we... Went back to the bus, it was immediately the moment when they sang Hatikva. They rode back in silence. The next morning, they were all over the headlines. Championing us for what we did. So it completely reversed itself to become a huge scandal of how the government is censoring the art and religious oppression and freedom of speech and the freedom of the art and the freedom of expression and a few uh, demonstrations. I think one in Jerusalem, one in Tel Aviv. It took weeks for the secular public's outrage to subside. The culture minister, Itzhak Levy, bore the brunt of the blame, even though he didn't have anything to do with the scandal. They pinned it on me because I was the new culture minister and because I'm religious. I had a difficult time with the artists in Israel. For a while, they would read a letter against me at the beginning of performances, saying that I don't understand art, I don't believe in artistic freedom, and that I'm backward and want to turn Israel into Iran. And the audience would applaud. Gradually, tensions subsided. The culture minister invited Israeli artists to his home to air their grievances and mend fences. Overall, the Gatkes scandal, as it came to be known, opened a national discussion about censorship and freedom of speech. Ohad Naharin's Echad Miodea took on new layers of meaning and came to represent something much bigger. Freedom, complete freedom of expression, freedom of the individual, and it's a great freedom of the body. Shoshi Shmolovitz. What you didn't get here in the podcast version of that story was the amazing dance that accompanied the piece in the live show version. It was choreographed and performed by Maya Orkin. Check her out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Okay, so moving along. It's Independence Day... May 2008. You've just woken up, you're eating your cereal, drinking your coffee. You open the paper, and a glossy ad falls out. Israel celebrates 60 years of independence, it reads. There's one source of pride that has been with us for 60 years, the text in the smaller letters continues, since the very beginning of the state. It has been there with us in all our important national moments. It has been with us in all the important moments of our personal lives, too. In moments of sadness and moments of joy. It always makes us feel as if we belong and gives us renewed strength. Sounds impressive, huh? And what you might be asking yourself was that timeless source of pride that the ad was describing... Well, it was our national flag. But the ad wasn't just an ad. It came with a little gift. A plastic bag with a large cloth flag inside. Pretty cool. And who was behind this nice little memento that was given away to every single newspaper buyer that day? At the very bottom of the page, it said that Banca Poalim, the workers' bank, was proud to distribute the Israeli flag so that together we can paint the country Blue and white. Welcome to modern day Israel, the land of milk and honey, in which banks are the official promoters of patriotic sentiment. Ever since 2005, Banca Poalim, which is Israel's largest bank, had been distributing free flags on Yom Atzmaut. They'd give out more than a million flags each year. And 2008 was no different. So I actually have one of those 2008 Banca Poalim flags here with me. I asked Lindley Rothenberg from the Eye Center, who had never seen this flag before, to jump into the studio with me. Okay, so Lindley, do you notice anything odd about this flag? <laughs> um, the star is just wrong. It's like tilted. Yeah, the Magen David, the Star of David, is on its side. If you're having a hard time imagining this, go to our website to see a picture. Or else just think of an American flag with blue stripes and red stars, or a Canadian one with the maple leaf stem up. So you might think Israelis are laid back and that those who notice the mistake, and really it was hard not to notice, would just sort of laugh it off. Not quite. There had already been some grumbling in previous years, when consumers realized that these free flags were manufactured in China. In 2008, when the Chinese factory got the angle of the Magen David wrong, people freaked out. If only the bank had manufactured the flags in, say, Dimona or Yerucham, they were sure, such a mistake would have never happened. For many people that year, the upside-down Magen David, made in China and distributed by a bank, symbolized everything that was wrong with Israel. Sloppiness, hyper-capitalism, loss of national pride. Banca Poalim scrambled to do some damage control. 
But instead of just admitting that someone had messed up, they released a rather amazing statement. I should say that as we were working on this show, we tried to talk to just about anyone who was someone at Banka Poalim at the time. No one agreed to talk. The only person who called us back had one word regarding our interest. So I'll just read you the public statement they issued at the time. Our flag, they said, is identical in every detail to those that were hanging on the wall behind Ben-Gurion as he declared the state back in 1948. They were referring to these long banners stretched out behind Ben-Gurion, in which the Magen David was, indeed, on its side. Again, just go to our site to see what I mean. Anyway, just like those flags they went on, our flag is meant to be hung vertically, top to bottom. This is most definitely not a mistake, and not disrespectful. It's just an accurate historical tribute. People weren't, to say the least, convinced, or amused. Some of them went all legal, pointing out that the flag law from 1949 stipulates that the Magen David has to be upright, at the center of the flag, and can't be rotated no matter how the flag is hung. Shelly Echimovich, an upstart Labour Party politician, seized the moment. She began publicly shaming Banka Poalim, and called upon Israelis to boycott their flags and not hang them up on their balconies. Two years later, her efforts became law. Public companies are no longer allowed to purchase Israeli flags manufactured abroad. Banka Poalim, in case you were wondering, still gives out flags every year. You know, because, as they said, a flag is a source of pride that follows us always in moments of sadness and moments of joy. Shai Satran and Itai Haiman produced that piece. So it's only 2016, and rather than end our journey with a science fiction piece about Yom Atzmaut 2018, Israel's 70th birthday, we want to conclude the show, and the season, with a story from now. Yochai Metal brings us to our final Independence Day stop. I want you to conjure up the nerdiest get-together you can possibly imagine. Say, Comic-Con, or maybe a huge Star Trek convention. Okay, now put a kippah or a yarmulke on all the guys. Dress the girls in long skirts. You with me? Welcome to the 2016 International Youth Bible Competition. The crowd is going wild. Rows of family members and classmates are cheering on 12 nervous-looking, pimple-faced teenagers on stage. The Bible competition is an Israeli staple, an international event billed as a sort of Bible World Series. The main event takes place on Independence Day and is televised nationally. It's a very big deal. After a while, the host gets the crowd to settle down and the competition begins. What you're hearing here in the background is the national level, which took place in April and determined which four contestants would represent Israel in the final international competition, this Independence Day. 
For the past month, we've been following the winners of the national round. So, without further ado, I give you our four beautiful Bible nerds. My name is Tzuriel. Tehila. Let's dive right in. We're in the crossroads section, one of the most crucial stages because you can earn a total of 20 points. Each contestant is asked four questions, and now it's 17-year-old Tehila's turn. She steps up to the podium, wearing a long jeans skirt and sandals with socks, She has this incredibly stern and focused look on her face. Right off the bat, she gets stuck and passes on the first question. Then she quickly fires off three correct answers in a row. The host now returns to the first question. For a penalty of two points, he reminds her, you can ask for a clue. The clock's ticking, but she remains silent. Then, with seconds left, she answers. Amos. Amos is correct. The crowd roars as Teila is awarded the full 20 points. Your stubbornness paid off, bellows the host. What courage! A few days later, in her living room, I spoke to Teila about that moment. How'd you do it? You look so calm. Ah, no, I'm not. (laughs) I like the stress. If I uh, was not stressed, I uh, was not learning. I think it's fair to say that Teila, she's kind of a favorite to win. This is her second year in the running. Last time, she competed against her little brother, Eyal, who actually went on to win the international contest. One side, it was very happy that I uh, won the champion. From, but from the other side, uh, because I win, she lose. Uh, so it was uh, a conflict. So Taylor has her very own Bible champion as a private tutor. But she isn't banking on that alone. Her learning method is insanely detailed. First off, every room in the house is allocated to studying a different book of the Bible. In the living room, I learned the book Mishlei. And in my parents' room, I learned Yoel. It doesn't stop there. Every book I learn, not only in uh, another place, but uh, two with uh, another position. Proverbs on the living room couch, laying down with her head propped up by a pillow. Isaiah in her own room, seated on the bed with her legs crossed. Ezekiel in her brother's room on the floor with legs stretched out, and so on and so forth. Around 1.30 at night, when Tila finally falls into bed, exhausted, she stares at dozens of sticky notes pasted on the wall above her pillow. In the front of the note, there is the question, and in the back, there is the answer. She hopes that by some magical process of osmosis, the answers will seep into her brain while she sleeps. And so far... It seems to be working. I mean, check this out. Most of the chapters I know uh, by heart. <laughs> Can we try it? <laughs> we gave her a little test. Tila's father opened the Bible to a random page and read the first half of a verse. Without missing a beat, she completed the pasuk. <laughs> I was amazed by Teila, but in the national round, she only came in second. Meet 
14-year-old, curly-haired, and shy Elkanah Friedman, who took first place. Elkanah is not one for the mic. In our conversations, just like in the competition itself, he gave the shortest, most concise answers possible. When we talked about the competition, he sort of shrugged it off and insisted that he isn't taking it very seriously. I'm not the competitive type, he told me. I'm just doing it for fun. What's your secret, I asked him. I don't have one, he said. But his father Aaron let us in on it. The love of Torah gives him a great advantage. Elkanah's mother concurs. She reminisced about how they used to find five-year-old Elkanah asleep, in bed, with his Bible. And in case you were wondering, no special memorizing tricks here. Elkanah simply sits down and reads and reads and reads. Our third contestant headed for the finals is Yonatan Eldar, and he comes with his own soundtrack. Sonata by Haydn in E major. Yonatan, who's going to be 18 in a couple of months, is the oldest of the four Israeli candidates. He's also the most experienced. Actually, this is my fourth year uh, going in this competition, um, but this is the first time I've actually reached the international stage. I, I'm still not sure I got, got my head around that fact. Uh, yeah, very, very excited. I can never resist a good competition. Very competitive. In last year's competition, Yonatan was at the heart of a controversy of biblical proportions. Last year was a pretty crazy story. Um, the judges messed up on, on something, and they took off eight points that they shouldn't have, and I ended up losing by a margin of four points. Yonatan apparently attracts drama. This year, he's part of another controversy. Yonatan Eldar, We're heading back to the crossword section again. Yonatan's last answer, though correct, came in way after the buzzer. And all hell broke loose. Well, not really, but there was a tense yet polite deliberation at the judges' table. This time, I'm the one who wasn't supposed to... If the, if the judges had done their job correctly, wouldn't have won. Like, wouldn't have advanced. Do you think about that? I try not to, uh, but but I can't help but think of it once in a while. Okay, so, quick recap. We have Teila, hailing from a Bible-winning family, and she's got a whole memorizing system worked out. Then we've got young Elkanah, driven by raw talent and a true love of Torah. And Yonatan? Well, Yonatan's got Moria. My name is Moria Dar. I manage Yonatan's learning. Yonatan's 13-year-old sister looks like a little twig, but she's got fierce eyes. She reprimands him whenever he slacks off and snaps at him when he misplaces his notes. You are messy! Yeah, okay, so paper's not for me. But ultimately, it's clear there's a lot of mutual love and admiration in this relationship. During study sessions, the two of them sit facing each other on either side of a bed and work into the wee hours of the night. Is that Yechizkel? Yeah. Come on, don't, don't, if, if you're doing Yechizkel, don't have Hashem Elohim in, in it, because it's just too obvious. Yonatan knows this will be his last chance, and he's giving it all he's got. 
But what really excites him about the competition is meeting other Bible enthusiasts. People are really coming from all over the world. They just opened a WhatsApp group, and it's uh, it's really co- it's really cool. We've got one more contestant to meet. My name is Suriel uh, Naaman. And Suriel, who is 14 and a half, has a very different attitude than Yonatan. I am not a friendly person. I love to be alone. I don't feel alone or bored because I love to learn Bible and mathematics. Do you ever like wish you had more you were more social? I, I don't like friends. I don't excited of of uh, those kind of feelings. So what things do excite you? Tell to win in the World Bible Competition. Right before the national competition, we went around asking the contestants about their studying methods. But Suriel, he wouldn't talk to us. I can't, uh, I can't speak it. Oh, okay. It's a secret? Yes. So you can imagine how excited I was when, sitting in his bedroom, a week later, he suddenly said, Now I uh, say the secret. Just so you know, like, your secret is safe with us. We're going to hold this information until after the competition. No, I am not afraid to speak now the secret because they don't have enough time to implement it. Okay. The secret is... The Bible uses a lot of metaphors. And if I remember the metaphors... I remember the Bible. So, yeah, that's his secret. The metaphors. On Yom Atzimut itself, when the international round took place, I was far away, in New Orleans actually, in the middle of our live show tour. But I wasn't going to miss it. So I woke up at 3 a.m. and pulled up the live stream on my phone. <laughs> Moderator Guy Zuaretz, fresh off hosting the hit Israeli version of Survivor, awkwardly thanked all the contestants for showing us what true love of Torah is all about. After many rounds and hours of grueling questions, there were only two contestants standing. Two out of 60 kids from all over the world, Teila and Elkanah. They faced each other in a sudden death knockout round, Rosh Berosh, head to head. Tehila, you'll recall, is the only girl in our group, and young Elkanah, he's the lifelong lover of Torah. Anyway, after 10 questions each, it was still a tie. You could hear a pin drop in the Jerusalem theater. Then, Tila got a curveball. But who was it said, the host asked. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Tila thought for a second and answered, Beasts. But she was wrong. The verse from Job 41.17 actually refers to a Leviathan. And that was that. I give you Elkanah, the new world Bible champion. As Elkanah was busy shaking Bibi's hand and grinning to the cameras, I messaged all four candidates to congratulate them. Only antisocial Suriel wrote back to thank me. Was it fun, I texted back? No, he quickly replied. So I asked him why. He never answered. 
יוחאי מיטל. So we've reached the end of our journey, 68 and counting. It began a minute before the birth of the state, as Mordechai Zlotnik Avida broadcast from the bathroom in the Tel Aviv Museum, and ended just last week with our Bible mavericks vying for the crown. And now what? Where do we go from here? What will Israel's 70th or 80th or 90th anniversaries look like? The answer changes dramatically depending on who you happen to ask, and just how optimistic or pessimistic they happen to feel that day. The future of Israel is maybe the most divisive issue of all. One which takes us out to the streets, or to the polling booth, or on the radio, trying to nudge the country in a certain direction. And I guess it's a question that we, at least, are going to continue exploring more and more in our next season, which will start up again in the fall. If you miss us during our break, don't worry. You can catch up on all our previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other podcast platforms. You can also tune into our Hebrew episodes and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And also, while you're on our site and if you enjoy our show, please consider donating to our ongoing listener drive. So many of you have already contributed, and I can't tell you how thankful we are. You guys make the show possible. And speaking of Shkalim, you can probably already recite our appeal for sponsorship by heart. But we are still looking for that sponsor who will not only support our show, but will also reach a phenomenal audience, tens of thousands of people, who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So if that sponsor could be you, email us at sponsor at prx.org. This episode was created together with the fantastic Adrian Mathewitz as part of our latest live show tour in the States. That tour couldn't have happened without the amazing vision of the folks at the JCC Manhattan, and especially Megan Whitman and the generous support from Faye and Hartley Koshitsky, the Charles H. Revson Foundation, Zabars, and Zabars.com. Thanks to Ronit Jacobs and Netta Shacham at the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, to Liba Kornfeld and Leslie Fishman at the JCC New Orleans, and to Aideen Sachs, Don Baranovikov, and Rena Fisher. A huge thanks to our friends in Chicago, to Anne Lansky and the iCenter team, to Lori and Benji Sagarin, Rabbi Michael Weinberg, Bruce Crane, and Beth Sayer at Temple Beth Israel. And of course... to Binny and Mark Swislow and Laura, Leon, and Bracha Finkel, who all became our families while we were in Chicago. Thanks also to Shiran Pasternak, Rabbi Joy Levitt, Rabbi Ayelet Cohen, Amanda Crater, Colton Tracy, Matt Temkin, and Jeff Fontaine. To Oz Polak, Heather Diatli, Ali Schechter, Tamir Etting, Barak Hayman, Manuel Zermati, and Itzik Ben-Avi, the supervisor of the International Bible Competition. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmolovitz, and Rachel Fisher. 
Itai Hyman, Amir Faktor, and Katie Pulverman are our incredible production interns. Adam Rose is our music intern and wrote the beautiful original music for this episode. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. Amishi Harman, and I just wanted to say thank you, toda, to each and every one of you. We began the season as a small show with small dreams, and you helped us succeed every single one of them. We'll be back sometime in the fall. Until then, for me and the entire Israel Story family, Shalom Shalom and Yalla Bye. Thank you.